Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, on a January night in 1897, in an Episcopal church in Philadelphia, a crowded church was witness to in a curious ceremony. In the Church of the Evangelists, located in Southern Society Hill, just 10 or so blocks from Independence Hall, a gaggle of clerics unveiled a life-size painting of Charles I, King of England, and, so far as the clerics were concerned, a saint and martyr. Then William Stevens Perry, the Episcopal Bishop of Iowa, of all places, ascended to the pulpit to explain to the assembled how Charles I, far from being an absolutist and enemy of liberty, had laid the foundations of American political order. This striking scene begins Michael Conley's description of a curious moment in the history of Anglo-American political thought and sentiment, a resurgent Jacobite movement that championed the cause of the Stuart monarchs as a means of opposing the corruptions of the modern age. It's a vignette that begins his new book, Jacobitism in Jacobitism, I should say, in Britain and the United States, 1880-1910. Michael Conley is professor of history at Purdue University Northwest. This is his third appearance on the podcast. Michael, how are you? Or as you used to say to me every morning, how the hell are you? (laughs) Thanks for having me back, Albert, uh, uh, and talking about a subject that is, if memory serves, completely different from the previous ones we've uh, Well, we've we've talked about presidents twice and somewhat unwillingly on my part, because as you know... uh, I am suspicious of any historian who puts presidential in front of their name. Well, my next book is also about a president. So. I know, and we're going to get to that. And we're going to get to Michael Conley, patron of cranks and lost causes. <laughs> um, but uh, I am heavily mentioned the acknowledgments, uh, perhaps as a bid to be on the podcast. But uh, I am, uh, you describe how at an AHA meeting, you told me about this. If, me, if memory serves, we were drinking at the time. You, you said that you, you were going to write a book about British, American, Canadian Jacobites. And I turned to you, I, I am editing here, with a wry smile and replied, how precious. And I think it's a damn dirty lie. <laughs> I think that you're far too kind. I'm sure that I sneered. I have in my hand a transcript of that conversation. <laughs> because I was afraid that things would lead to exactly where I began this podcast introduction. Grown yeah. men playing dress up and uh, flouncing around with portraits of King Charles, uh, King Charles the first, and yes. by God, that's where exactly where we went. And since that day, if you know me well enough, driven by spite, <laughs> I've attempted to prove you wrong and have written a book to do exactly that. <laughs> and you had to set, and it had to happen in Philadelphia, of all places. I, I know exactly what I'm doing, oh, Albert. God. It's all very calculated. Well, I mean, I've okay. So, but it's I have to say I was wrong because you can get a book out of it, and it's fascinating. Uh, we'll talk, and it is uh, and fascinating, and I think even significant. So, first of all, for the for the folks at home. What's the difference between a Jacobite and a Jacobin? This is where my father's interest usually waned at, at this point. <laughs> because of the technicality of it? <laughs> the or? Technicality. <laughs> <laughs> well, they both look the same, and they're often confused. Most people, I should say most people, but many people know what Jacobin means. That's even used pejoratively in conversation today that someone you dislike as a Jacobin or something like that. Well, only you, Michael. Well, it's a small circle of us, but nonetheless. <laughs> Uh, a Jacobin and a Jacobite are different creatures. A Jacobin refers to French revolutionaries during the French Revolution, really the most radical of the revolutionaries, who, as I say in the book, had a, a volume of Rousseau in one hand and a, a cord of the guillotine in the other. Jacobites are an entirely different creature. Jacobites, are coming from the Latin for James, meaning follower of, of James, were those who were... Uh, unhappy over two centuries leading down to what I talk about in the Victorian era, era, were unhappy that King James II, the last of the Stuart Kings, was booted off the throne in the Glorious Revolution of 1688 and determined to put the Stuarts back on the throne. And so in the 18th century, they were periodically 
rebellions in order to restore the Stuarts, the most famous being 1715 and the bigger one, 1745, the rising. Uh, both did fail, although 45 came a little bit closer. But with the failure of the 45, Jacobitism sort of faded from public consciousness for a while. You'd see it pop up in like Walter Scott novels or something like that. But it rose from the ashes in the, quite surprisingly really, in the 1880s and became on both sides of the Atlantic something of a, of a noticeable and potent reform movement in an era of reform movements. And one of the things I wanted to do with the book was to in, insert them into the conversation and the history of that era as a reform-minded movement. Now, we should almost call this neo-Jacobitism. I mean, it's not, it, it's, uh, it doesn't lead to a revolt. It doesn't lead to a revolution. It doesn't lead to armed conflict. It doesn't lead to, I mean, I, I believe it's Jonathan Clark once chronicled, he's trying to explain the power of Jacobitism and he listed not just the 15 and the 45, but there are like several like attempted revolts or conspiracies. Yep. It's a, this is a, a, the early 18th century or the first half of the 18th century and beyond is, is filled with conspiracy theories. And a lot of them are focused on Jacobitism. So this is different. This is a, a very idea. This is a very ideational movement. This is yep. a, these people are very much in their heads that we're going to be talking about. Yes. Um, so what's what's the re, what's the what's the genesis of this? Before we talk about some of the things that are in their heads, what's the genesis of this? Well, first of all, you're right. You'll see a lot of scholars who have talked about neo-Jacobitism will use that term neo to differentiate it from what's going on uh, in the in the 18th century. I I mention that in the book, but I just I just use Jacobitism because I, I preferred using that because that's the way they refer to themselves. Mm-hmm. That's, that's fair. But you're right in that these Jacobites, while certainly, you know, speaking of, you know, King Charles I is a saint and isn't it terrible what happened to James II and the Stuarts are the legitimate rulers and Queen Victoria, though we honor her a great deal, is a squatter on the throne. <laughs> they used, the, they said all those things, but they also used the movement primarily, in fact, to make a sustained commentary on the sort of what they saw as the corruptions of the time both in Victorian Britain, but also in Gilded Age and then Progressive Era, uh, Progressive Era America. And those corruptions were, you know, the criticisms were of wide scale. Political corruption, uh, you know, in an era when politics, they would say, is being dominated by companies and corporations and money. Uh, the economy driven by the factory system was doing nasty things to workers and polluting the environment and terrible cities. And they had problems with religious liberalism and so on. So this was... They used Jacobitism to launch a different critique of the era, and that does mark it as different from what happened in the 18th century. So, again, what's the what's the genesis of it? I mean, who, if, if you if you had to find the first group of these of these people in the 1880s, who right. are they? I mean, it, it's interesting that the Bishop of Iowa, Iowa. I mean, I driven by his cathedral many times in Davenport that he gets involved with this. And so Delaware, these, yep. and the Bishop of Delaware. Maybe I'm less surprised. Maybe I shouldn't be, um, but they're all involved in this. Um, but who are, who is it initially? So we'll start with Britain because the movement begins there before it launches. <coughs> excuse me, launches into North America. In Britain, it fires up in the 1880s on the surface because there are coming anniversaries that are going to bring. Jacobitism and the Stuarts back into public consciousness. You have uh, 1888, which is the centennial of the death of the Bonnie Prince, uh, Charles Edward Stuart. You have the, uh, I think, the tercentenary of Cromwell's birth in 1899, which is sort of a negative holiday, of course, for the Jacobins. They're not pleased with him at all. Jacobites. You just said Jacobins. Jacobins yeah, of, of all people to do uh, that. Of all people. Oh, my goodness. Yes. goodness. Uh, Jacobites. Um, 18. Uh, 99 would also be the anniversary of uh, the beheading of, of Charles I. So all of these anniversaries were coming into mind. Um, so they would be on the public uh, on the public consciousness. So in, in, what, 1886, you have the founding of the Order of the White Rose by two men, Lord Ashburnham, who was very much into Irish nationalism and the, the Carlist cause in, in uh, Spain. And then What's Henry up with the, what, why the Order of the White Rose? We're going to talk about this later, but are they against the House of Lancaster as well? I mean, what's... It, it, yeah, traditionally, the White Rose is seen as a, as a symbol 
of the Jacobite cause, and they would you know, infiltrate the white rose into various designs of things, and they would wear it on their lapel and things like that. It became a, a symbol of that. So they created this Order of the White Rose, and it became the preeminent, on both sides of the Atlantic, the preeminent Jacobite organization in the Victorian era. The other guy, so you have Lord Ashburnham on one hand, and then you have uh, Henry Jenner on the other, who was the premier Cornish nationalist and Cornish language expert in the country at the time. He wrote a a Cornish dictionary. I think he sent the first telegram uh, or telegraph, whatever, in in the Cornish language. And he he worked for the British Museum. He was very well known as an organizer of expositions and what have you. So these two were determined Jacobites and came together and formed the the Order of the White Rose in the middle of the 1880s. So you don't belabor the point, but you've obviously have your eye on sort of the modern post-liberal, anti-liberal people of the right and even the left as, as you're writing this book. And what's very interesting, as you point out, is that like, say, Patrick Deneen, uh, who begins his critique of liberalism by really going after Locke. It's useful that we brought Jacobins up. Right-wing uh, critiques of modernity often are critiques really of Rousseau, of Jacobinism. Um, but the, the these Jacobites, these 1880s, these Victorian Jacobites, like Deneen, like other modern anti-liberals, they're going after John Locke. Um, so, and it makes perfect sense that a Jacobite would have to go after Locke. So, but I think they're doing it, you're suggesting or saying for overlapping reasons. Could you, could you get into their critique of Locke or their, their, their attack on Locke? They're not critiquing him. They wouldn't destroy him. It's, it's not a, we'll take some of it and leave the rest. It's get rid of all of it, actually. Yeah, it is interesting that if you read the, the entirety of Jacobite writings. I don't think Rousseau comes up once. If it does, it's in passing with no substance whatsoever. That's because they, 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 don't, they don't care about what happened in the late 18th century. It's in <laughs> France. Who cares what happens in France? The real problem is in the country itself by this uh, diabolical John Locke. And it's interesting there, we could talk about this, how they, many of them, are perfectly happy with Hobbes. Yes, please do. But have one, nothing to do with John Locke. They look at... They they do not like a regime based upon consent, and they look upon Locke as being the court philosopher of everything that has happened in every regime in the post-1688 world, and so he becomes, he becomes the sort of poster philosopher of what they're going to be going after, this consensual society that liberates individuals from families and institutions and allows them to pursue self-interest, and it launches this sort of urban commercial revolution, which as far as they're concerned, allows everything that has happened after that, all the bad things, allows all of it to happen. It allows for consensual politics, or as far as they're concerned, leads to oligarchy and the rule and domination of corporations over government. It leads to a free market economy that just ravages the countryside and imprisons workers and leads to terrible conditions in cities. Um, it, it leads to everything everything after that. He is the philosopher that is identified with 16, 1688. And they, you're right, are relentless in pursuing him and the world that he begot. And, it's, and it's, it's not just the fact that he's exiled by Charles II. It's not just the fact of popular sovereignty. It's John Locke of property rights. This is red Toryism. This is as red as red Toryism gets. Absolutely. It is. There is, with this group of Tories, there is no fear of the state, right? There is not that sort of, I hate to use the term because it's not contemporary to the time, but like a libertarian streak to liberate the individuals to make uh, free economic choices and, and what have you. That allows that sort of possessive individualism that you see taking off, particularly in the 19th century with the, with the, uh, the economic revolution, the industrial revolution that takes place. But they are relentless pursuing the not only him, but the type of society he, as far as they're concerned, caused by his writing. They look at 1688 and Locke as a terrible detour, a detour that could have been avoided. And it sent 
Britain down a, a historical path that has led directly to the misery of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So uh, <laughs> it's like the definition of a crank. There's one explanation and here it is. Um, but there it is. Uh, they, they, what's their, what, do they like Hobbes because they see it as a, a, a justification of absolutism? They like Hobbes for a couple of reasons. One, they want to – the Order of the White Rose folks like Hobbes because they realize that if they insist upon a very narrow path into becoming a Jacobite, you have to be a lover of divine right. They'll get three people. But if they open the doors wider and say, hey, Hobbes is fine. If you come from that sort of uh, Hobbesian background or afraid of disorder, we'll take you a consensual social contract background. We'll take you. If you're coming from a filmer background, you really are a divine right person. Welcome in. If you're a Catholic, hey, what the heck? Come on in. You like Aquinas. You all get to the sort of same destination of what does it take to get a legitimate government? A legitimate society. They're obsessed with this idea of illegitimacy. 1688 being the pre, the preeminent example of that. Many of the Jacobites like Hobbes because they see parallels between their own age and the age of the English Civil War. An age of political disorder. Everything that I've already talked about, you know, corrupt cities and politics and the like. Political disorder, economic disorder. The times are out of joint. And the only way to solve that is to introduce a Habesian type type government, not in the sense of full Leviathan, you know, no rights whatsoever or something like that, but a much more orderly government, a monarch that actually has authority and is not just a, a placeholder and a, you know, parliament does everything. Uh, so they look to Hobbes as being – uh, the philosopher of order, and that's what they're they're trying to bring back to to Victorian era Britain and U.S. Do they um, ever develop? I mean, so you say that they don't; they're not preaching divine right of kings. Obviously, some of them believe it. Not all of them. Not all of them. Interesting. Uh, and do they do they therefore have a hard time coming up with a constructive politics or political philosophy or political theology, or do they attempt that? In the sense of something quite detailed and yeah, well, laying out a well, laying out a, a, a an action plan or a, what what the ideal state would look like. I mean, they they're good on the attack, but can they do they have any idea? Do they, uh, as we'll see, one of them is a very famous architect. Do they have blueprints? I mean, however <laughs> rough for what things should be like. Um, probably less than you would like. I'll say that um, in Britain. Their detail on what needs to be done is a little bit more theoretical than it is practical, other than, yes, the monarch needs to be much more powerful than uh, monarchs are now. The, you know, the king or queen has to have a great deal more authority because you know, one of the reasons you have so many problems in late Victorian England is because parliament is so rotten. We need to start draining authority away. Now, the more pure of the Jacobites will make the case for an absolute monarchy, but they tend to be in the minority. Most of them, when they speak, are making the case for some sort of a mixed system where you have a powerful monarch, uh, an empowered aristocracy, and some authority given to a democratic parliament. But in their own age, they're looking at what's happening, and they're seeing the other two, the monarch and the aristocracy, drained of authority over the 19th century. And what they're, what they're afraid is going to happen, they're going to get a republic. That I think will be the the end of the world as they know it. Well, speaking of where people already have a republic, uh, we've you've, we've talked about the Order of the White Rose in England. Yeah. Uh, what about Americans? Is this just uh, something for Anglomaniac Episcopalians uh, who just can't get enough of all those, you know, all that English stuff, uh, in, and who are painting their doors of their churches red? I mean, this is all part of the of what, what, what Alan Gwelt so long ago described as the you know, the one place where Anglo Catholicism won was in the American Episcopalian Church, completely overlaying the previous history of Anglicanism in, in North America. Really, um, is this part of that? Is this like the 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 the, the late stages of Anglo Catholicism's victory in America? Late stages could be the beginning <laughs> stages, actually. Americans are born monarchists. If you listen to the Jacobites in the United States, you would think that that was quite true. Um, 
Yes, in the United States, the, the chief Jacobites will speak of, you know, they have a problem because if they're, it's one thing if you're in Britain saying that, well, you know, Queen Victoria is too weak, whoever comes after, we need to have an empowered monarchy. You can find some people who are going to listen to that with, you know, a degree of attention could take that argument seriously. If you say that in the United States, you truly will fall into the category of crank because there's not a lot of people who are sitting there in of all places, Boston saying, you know what, William McKinley <laughs> is not quite what we need. We need King Bill or something like that. Yeah. Um, we need a monarch. So it's going to be much more difficult making a straight out monarchist case. So what the Jacobites in the United States will do is to say, look, we have a position called President of the United States, which has the potential to be a sort of elected king. And there are plenty of people today who are looking at the power of the executive branch who would be saying that exact thing. That's another story. Um, but there are plenty who are saying, if you follow the blueprint, if you will, that's kind of a nice segue, of what founding fathers like Alexander Hamilton said, you have the blueprint for an American monarchy. What we need to do is just to rediscover that, be sort of enthused by it and start giving more authority to a president, right? Longer terms of office, four, not enough time. How about 20? Yeah. Uh, how about an absolute veto? How about we make the Senate more permanent? Things like that. Yeah. Start turning it into a British style system supported by the constitution because as far as somebody like Alexander Hamilton is saying, all the foundation is there. All you have to do is build the structure on top of just it. Just a couple of, of small, just teeny weeny amendments and you've got a presidency for life. You have a Hamiltonian, as it should have been, a Hamiltonian president for life. This is, um, I, I must have escaped it. This is not, this is, this is. of course, this is the late 1890s craze for Hamiltonianism, or uh, yeah. the last time Hamilton was popular, um, which I've always associated with progressivism. Right. Um, but I, I think, I, I, did you discover any sort of, was there a craze for Hamiltonianism among some of these guys? There must have been. Absolutely. You know, the chief American, there are two great American advocates of Jacobitism in this era. One is Ralph Adams Cram, who is the we'll very, get to famous, him. very famous I'll architect. Just, just name drop now. And the yeah. other is Father Nickel, Robert Thomas Nickel. Cram is a lover of Alexander Hamilton. Wow. Mentions it several times in his works like this because he comes from an old Federalist family. He is, after all, Ralph Adams Cram. Ralph Waldo Emerson John or John Quincy Adams, because his father and his grandfather loved the Adams family. Um, it, it's all from that. Yeah, he's an old Federalist from an old Federalist family, and they wanted to bring back that sort of be inspired by the Hamiltonian tradition and empower the presidency to make him sort of elected king. Well, let's just put, underline this. There's a, you've got a great line. Um, you say, therefore, Victorian Jacobitism, ostensibly a movement to commemorate the fallen Stuarts, act as a stalking horse for a host of causes, religious, political, economic, and cultural, and a genuine philosophical opposition to liberal democracy. So as I said to you before we started recording, you know, you put me on a Jackson Lears, God bless you, uh, decades ago. And this is, uh, this is so you're arguing uh, for Jacobitism as, as much as important a anti-modernist movement as William Morris and uh, Liberty and Company wallpaper, as uh, William Morris and his wallpaper, uh, and his and his sort of odd socialist musings and medieval, yeah, it, medieval romances. Yeah, they're part of the sort of constellation of movements and uh, movements and forces in the in the anti-modernism that comes up in the eighteen nineties and early nineteen hundreds, yeah. along with yeah William Morris, Stickley, Ruskin, arts and class movements, arts and class movements, Stickley, uh, Henry Adams, all that group. Uh, Imogen Guiney, all those type of people who come up who are just very unhappy with the shape of the world. They think it didn't have to be this way. And with, as you said earlier, a little tinkering here and there, we could right the ship. Um, yes, they had a, and it goes for the, the British side of the story as well as the American side of the story. They thought the problems were universal, but they weren't just, and this is the point, I was, one of the points I was trying to make in the book. It wasn't just you know, yay for King Charles the First, and you know, every January we'll you know wear funny outfits and go to the mass, and then we'll see you next year. This was a much more sustained and detailed critique. Because that's what I thought it was when you told me about it. It was just an opportunity to wear dress up and wear lace and burn incense, which you right. know. Hence the intervening five years to prove you wrong. <laughs> uh, so in their writings, what have you? They're you know they're taking on 
big questions. You know, what does legitimacy mean? When is rebellion justified? You know, when should you obey a ruler? When should you not? What is the, what are the limits of liberty? You know, definition of liberty. They're taking on big questions. But at the same time, there is a there is a a, a certain tweeness and preciousness about the, the Marquis de Ravigny and his like. What's this? His his basically trying to come up with a list of the aristocracy that's not been contaminated by the Germans by the Hanoverians, right? I mean, this is that's all part of this too. It, what a magnificent. <laughs> brilliant creative project to take it's it's a say both the legitimist calendar and his jacobite peerage uh books are brilliant um sort of counterfactual histories imagine <laughs> if you will that not all the bad things didn't happen in 1688 what would the world have looked like Right, you know, looking at who would have, what have happened to the aristocratic families and what have you, leading to the aston and I put this in the book, the astonishing revelation that of all people, John L. O'Sullivan, the Jacksonian uh, spokesperson for and coined the phrase "manifest destiny." You cannot get a more Simon Pure Jacksonian, young America, than young America, John L. O'Sullivan. If 1688 had never happened, he would in fact be Sir John L. O'Sullivan, because I think it was his grandfather, father or grandfather, served with the Bonnie Prince and was given a peerage. Well, how the world could have looked. <laughs> Amazing. It is. It is a, an alternative history kind of steampunk fantasy, except it's in the era of steampunk. Um, it's that preciousness again. You yeah, can't I just can't myself. Oh, God. <laughs> um, but there is a and what and what. I mean, and you do feel kind of sad for them as they're approaching the moment of victory, because unfortunately, Queen Victoria is awfully popular, but she can't live forever. And they're actually kind of right about this. Wouldn't a Stuart be better than Edward VII? Uh, you know, corpulent, stupid, waste of space, right. a, a man who popularized undoing the bottom button of his waistcoat because it wouldn't button anymore. So everyone else had it. I mean, basically that's his one big achievement other than the tuxedo, I guess, cutting off the tails of his dinner jacket. Thank heavens. I'm not wearing a cardigan <laughs> sweater today. Or exactly. So this is, I mean, if Edward the seventh is going to, is Edward Prince of Wales is going to be your King. Well, you're in with a chance. They, the most radical of Jacobites actually thought, you know, like when the queen dies, here's our big chance. There's going to be popular demonstrations in the street saying we want Mary of Bavaria, who is really the de jure. And who is – she's the actual – she's the – She is the heir to the – the legitimate heir to the throne by the Jacobite succession coming down to her. And, yep. and, and was she uh, was she approached? Was she aware of this? Was she, was she charmed rather than horrified? Uh, she was set upon by the Jacobites. <laughs> From both sides of the Atlantic, they kept on a steady correspondence with both her and her son, the who should be the Prince of Wales, Prince Rupert or Ruprecht, who would go on quite awkwardly to become a German general in the First World War oh, yeah. on the Western Front. Yeah, the, and of course, the troops opposite him were in fact British, so it's a relatively awkward situation. It is, that it you're somewhat, shooting at somewhat awkward, yeah. Shooting at your own citizens on the other side, your own subjects, I should. Yeah, say. he was head of, head of the Bavarian army. Uh, is what, that would so they were the house of the house of whatever that is in, in, in Littlesbach. Littlesbach, yeah, yeah. So Jacobitism in that situation was uh, much more difficult to uphold. When well, this is what happens when you're, you know, this is a definitely a pre-Brexit sort of conception of wow. uh, of Britain. Yeah, I'll add that into the second edition. <laughs> second <conclusion>. Yeah, <laughs> these are the complexities of a continental relationship. Things I didn't think of the first time around. Yeah. Yes, so. Um, so yes, they saw the, the death of Queen Victoria having a lot of potential because Edward's reputation was so awful. Imagine their horror when he goes on to become an extremely popular monarch in Britain. This is not this is not how it was supposed to have worked. They did not see that one coming. They didn't, didn't see that coming, yeah. and it was uh, slightly demoralizing to them. Yes. Uh, let's talk about you. You mentioned we mentioned two of these these uh, the big personalities of 
on the American side of the Atlantic. And one of them right. is a, a nice New Hampshire farm boy, a nice New Hampshire boy, Ralph Adams Cram, Ralph Waldo Emerson, John Quincy Adams Cram. Well, I mean, right. that's, that's where the names come from. That's nice. That's not actually his full name, is it? No. Okay. No, his father uh, gave Ralph and Adams because right. I liked Ralph and Adams. Yeah. So <laughs> he's an architect. Um, right. And naturally, let me guess, he doesn't like neoclassicism. He likes Gothic. Correct. He sees the 19th century uh, as being a wasteland of architecture. He's uh, unhappy with it. And yes, he doesn't like the direction of architecture, neoclassicism, anything like that. And he is the, in many ways, the the father of neo-Gothicism, which takes off in the United States. And you see it on college campuses, you know, the sort of castellated look that in many ways is creditable to cram, as well as uh, neo-Gothic churches that you find around the country. Um, If you see a a Gothic-looking church and its build date is sometime between, say, 1910 and 1940, there's a pretty decent chance that that's a cram building, cram-designed structure, because he's really the father of that. And it didn't just end there, of course. And he designed churches, and I said college campuses, and there are other public buildings and things like that. You you say West Point. He's the the architect for the the military. The chapel. Yeah, the chapel. chapel. Yep. You know, it's, if you ever seen it, it stands up next to the Hudson, very just as he would like it, looking like a, a keep, you know, guarding the approaches or something like that. But not only did he, you know, launch into a, a neo-Gothic architecture career, he kept up writing. He was a prolific writer, not only writing about neo-Gothicism, but philosophy and politics, and sort of spinning out from his neo-Gothic, uh, neo-Gothic designs and his Jacobitism kept up his writing career right through almost the end of his life, right up through the, right up through the 1930s. And he was a determined Jacobite. Oh, the entire time, up until the end? Uh, up until, well, he, he wasn't as vocal with it uh, after, he, the, after the Order of the White Rose disappeared. But if you read his writings, it's amazing how Charles I keeps popping up. And he named his home in Sudbury, Massachusetts, Whitehall. Of course, is where Charles I was beheaded. Um, so it, there is a thread. It's less vocal, but it's all the way there through the end. This admiration of Jacobitism and the cause of Charles the First, um, cause of Charles the First, and the like. It's remarkable that the two most famous figures in American Jacobitism are both uh, connected to, of all places, New Hampshire, which interests me because I used to live there. One born in Hampton Falls, New Hampshire. You can't get a sort of quainter Yankee place than that. His father was a Unitarian minister, for, well, I mean, for God's sakes. I mean, that's a, there you go. <laughs> There's a long distance between that and isn't King Charles I great? And uh, Robert Thomas Nichol, who was an Anglican priest, actually a Canadian, who was buried in Portsmouth, right by the seaside. It's uh, sort of a quirk of history. And by the way, those places are as the crow flies less than 20 miles apart from each other, where Cram was born and where Nichols was, was buried. And they're both the, the best-known names when it comes to American Jacobin. So describe Father Nichol, because he's he's key to many things, including this ceremony that I began with, this unveiling yeah. of this of portrait. And you should, we should describe the ceremony. I mean, the important – we'll get to that after you describe Nichol. We'll get to the ceremony and – I want I want some details for the for the audience on that that the portrait of Charles the First. Yeah, Robert Thomas Nichol. Everybody knows who Cram is. A lot of people know who Cram. Is. I should probably call Ar- architecture <laughs> architecture historians certainly know who Cram is. It's if you hang out in the nineteenth century, you know who Cram yeah. is. Uh, nobody knows who Robert Thomas Nichol is. He's he completely disappeared. Robert Thomas Nichol was a Canadian. He uh, was born just outside of Toronto, St. Catharines, and he was the grandson of uh, a great Canadian hero of the War of eighteen twelve which he gloried in. He was very much, not surprisingly, very proud of that. He becomes an Anglican priest and a teacher up at the Trinity School in Port Hope, Ontario, very well-known Canadian uh, private school. Moves down to New York City, and he becomes the preeminent Jacobite spokesperson in New York City throughout the 1890s. I mean, the New York Times is uh, taking note of him as being this this uh, outspoken uh, advocate for the cause of, uh, of Jacobitism. He founds the society, uh, uh, or rather, he founds the Order of the White Rose, an official American branch of that, co-founds the Society of King Charles the Martyr, uh, great activist. And then in 1899, he converts to Roman Catholicism, 
which shocks everybody. It actually made the New York Times that <laughs> shock in the streets. You know, uh, Robert Thomas Nichol converts to to being uh, a Roman Catholic, and he wants to be a Catholic priest, but the Catholic Church won't have him. Twice he tries to say, "Well, let me come over." And uh, in England, actually, he goes over, and the Archbishop of Westminster says, "No, thanks." And so he is uh, against his wishes, essentially laicized, and becomes eventually an art expert working for a couple of decades at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. I mean, nobody knows. He's, all of his co-workers have no idea that this is this great old Jacobite. And he's working there throughout the 20s and uh, into the early mid-1930s. And he retires, dies in 1937, and is buried in Portsmouth. But he was key, he and Cram, are key to this whole story of American Jacobinism. So what does that ceremony, I mean, he organized these things. Uh, yep. Why does a Bishop of Iowa want to be involved in this? And why does he have to go through these gymnastics? These Why does he feel the need to go through these intellectual gymnastics to prove that Charles I is sort of like a proto-founder of the United States? So first of all, why that ceremony took place. They, yeah. The problem with having an American Jacobitism is that there's nothing tangible in the United States connected to it. You can't march to a statue. There's no statue of King Charles I in Boston that you can go through and throw flowers at or something like that. There's some good there, reasons there, why there aren't. I just want to, there uh, is, yeah. but the Jacobites, uh, like Archbishop Perry, are trying to uh, rectify this. So they, you need something tangible to something physical in the United States in order to more effectively uh, worship, if you will, uh, Charles I and the Jacobite cause. So Father Nickel organizes a fundraising campaign to have a portrait, full life-size portrait, <coughs> excuse me, painted of Charles I, raises the money, has it done. It's shipped over to the United States. Enormous, by the way. It's over six feet tall. It has it hung in a church in New York City, an Anglo-Catholic parish. They can't fit it very well because it's so big. And so he offers it to another church, and the Church of the Evangelist in Philadelphia says, we're happy to take it. They put it in their church. It doesn't fit there well either, by the way. They hang it just above the, the, the front entrance. There's a rose window above the entrance. It's so big it obscures about a third <laughs> of the rose window and in order to welcome the portrait to the parish they hold this ceremony in january of 1897 and all of these anglican clerics come as you mentioned the bishop of iowa and uh in delaware and it's amazing and lots of others send their regrets wish i could be there but i can't and none of them are saying and by the way i can't stand charles in these letters of regret they're saying i just love king charles the first so there is a definite streak of King Charles the Martyr veneration in the Episcopalian tradition uh, by the by the 1890s, and of course, it's difficult to advocate uh, the cause of Charles the First in the United States because so many Americans who know their history look at 1688 as being the sort of introduction to a book that ends in 1776. Mm -hmm. They see it almost like the first chapter of the Revolution, throwing off an absolutist king. Um, and so bringing a big portrait of Charles I to the U.S. is problematic. So what do they do, as you say? Gymnastics uh, in order to, uh, to, do, to describe why we should do this. He's, the, he's like a founding father. He granted all of these charters. He, uh, of you know, Virginia and all, uh, all these, the Stuarts generally bringing all these charters over. We should, in fact, worship him. There wouldn't be a United States without, without King Charles the. King Charles I, but it, infuriates many others. Yeah. The religious press in the United States and the secular press blows up at this and says, what in the world is the Episcopalian Church doing? Uh, they've sort of fallen into monarchy. It's un-American and the like causes a furor in 1897. Um, it's interesting, of course, that they do it in Philadelphia. As I said, it, it's about yeah. eight blocks from the Independence Hall. I and I, I says, I mean, they could have chosen Virginia. After all, he, he, at least his James established Virginia. Yeah, that would be right. that would be legit. Um, Maryland, that's actually Baltimore. Charles. Yeah. The, he could have done Baltimore, but they go for Philadelphia. Uh, well, that can't be an accident. 
it might be an accident. It might be an accident. Okay. It may be the case that I don't know about how many churches stepped forward after Nichols' offer and said, please choose me. Yeah. It may be the case that the only church that raised its hand was the Church of the Evangelist. That I don't know. Mm-hmm. But it's nonetheless, and it offended everybody by doing this, as I mentioned, there was this huge uproar. It's noteworthy, nonetheless, that of all places, it pops up in Philadelphia, yeah. so close to Independence Hall. It's 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 a wonderful contrast. It is. I mean, there's also there is a sort of Anglomania amongst the uh, upper class of, of Philadelphia. There have been for some time, and this is actually 1890s. This is maybe will appear in a separate podcast soon. This is a period of of great popularity in Philadelphia for, of all things, cricket. Philadelphia was the cricket capital of the United States. The main line was filled yeah. with cricket. And it was still a popular audience venue. People were going to baseball games and cricket games. Yep. Like at the same time, it was both were popular at the same time. This is uh, when America was a freer and a more wonderful place in some ways. Um, uh, I here here. <laughs> <laughs> but that is just the, that is the sort of weird contrarianism of, of Philadelphia right there is you know uh, cricket and Charles the first. Um, there was real quick. There was a an Anglomania in the United States generally. There, that's true. That's true. At this time, because after after a century where the United States and Britain was just, were constantly at loggerheads, you have a time now in that run up to World War II when the two countries are starting to draw closer together. <clears throat> so much so. That this Anglomania, I've seen examples of this getting closer to 1910, separate from Jacobitism, of people in places like Boston saying, we need to reconceptualize the American Revolution and speak about it in in terms that don't stress revolution, mm-hmm. yeah. that stress a much more conservative event, the preservation of order and things like that. And all this English language, starts, uh, English, meaning Anglo language, begins to filter into these understandings. Yeah, really you've got the uh, various Anglo-American friendship societies. Yep. They're pre- predating the First World War. You've got the sort of, there's a, there's a race angle to it. This is where Anglo-Saxonism becomes uh, popular, yep. the Anglo-Saxon races. So there's that, but it's it's even as as this shows, it's it's bigger than just simply focusing on race. Um, yep. It covers a lot of different uh, parts of the waterfront. Uh, can we can we finish uh, in terms of personalities? We can't go. Uh, we can't end this without talking about Herbert Vivian, because there's some strange cats in this book. Uh, <laughs> but he he's definitely uh, he's got some he's he got a weird a weird pattern on him. Vivid Vivian. Yeah. Yes. He. Uh, a prominent British Jacobite and writer. That's probably what he's best known for is being a uh, being a writer. The best story is his uh, adoration of the, the statue of James II and how the authorities in London weren't too keen on it, and he was just taunting them in the newspaper. You try and stop me. And- from from now, explain what when you say adoration of the statue of James II. Uh, prayers, um, uh, the placing of flowers, speeches being given. Um, uh, I forget if it was James' birth or his, uh, commemorating his death, but nonetheless, that they would process to these statues. More, more famously, the Jacobites would process to the statue in Trafalgar Square, and they would have big ceremonies there, um, prayers and celebrations. Vivian was much more interested in James the second and uh, wanted to place statue uh, to place uh, flowers on the statue and have some sort of a ceremony and the london police said well we're not too keen on this and he had this newspaper war with them saying you you know you rebels are not going to stop me and went and did it and then as his life goes on he becomes a very well-known travel writer writing about serbia and what have you and then by the 1930s he writes a book called fascist italy where he uh, rather uncomfortably falls in love with Mussolini. It's it's very interesting because it, he is like um, for variety. I guess because of the podcast, I've been reading a bunch on twenties and thirties Europe recently, and um, it's really extraordinary how uh, pan-European fascism is and how many different national varieties of, there are of it. So you've got Matashas in, in in Greece, who's got his own flavor. So we, it's not too surprising to me to find out that Vivian is a anti-Hitlerite, pro-Mussolini fascist. Yeah, yeah, which, yeah. which now seems strange to us because we appreciate. I, I haven't appreciated the varieties, the fifty-seven varieties of fascism, which existed in you know in throughout Europe. Yeah, yeah. Vivian looks at Mussolini as the guy who's going to bring the monarchy back because he would, he was a travel writer, right? He used to write these really interesting travel books, you know, going around what I saw as I traveled around central Europe and the like. And he had traveled through Italy and detested the Republican 
disorderly Republican parliamentary Italy before 1922. And in his books, he would say, this is Whiggery at its worst. Yeah, All of this that, parliamentary disorder and constant elections and nothing's ever done. And then the March on Rome comes and he says, Mussolini is his savior. He's going to set everything right. And whenever at the perfect moment, he's going to bring the monarchy. He's going to bring the monarchy back. It's uh, it became almost if you read Vivian a certain way, it becomes sort of a blueprint. I like, 1688 can be uh, gotten rid of. We can we can sort of you know get over 1688. There can be a monarchy somewhere in, uh, in the future. So it's not just Italy he's speaking of. In some ways, he's so also speaking of Britain. You bring in a strong man, and eventually, it's sort of like Franco. Then they only in in that case, Franco puts in a. A uh, Juan Carlos who is an absolute king. Yeah, yeah. It, it, he and it's interesting. He's just one example. After you know, after World War One or after 1900, the Jacobites go in a hundred different directions. You know, they exhibit that Jacobitism in a variety of different ways. Vivian's expression of it was that. Mussolini could be a really useful figure because he's going to help Italy restore a monarchy. And that's what legitimists and Jacobites like us really want. Mm -hmm. Where should we end this story, uh, this uh, ep this episode? Is there any 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 point that I, I should have asked that you wish I had asked? Um, is there anything that we haven't um, that we haven't touched? You wrote the book. I mean, I only, yeah. I've only read it. <laughs> uh, I'm, uh, that's me asking a question to buy time, uh, a, a strategy. One of the things, look, I wrote the book for a couple of different reasons. One on a most basic level was curiosity because sure. people write books for different reasons. One, you think of it for years and you work your way up to it. You work for a decade and you write it. This was a case of, I was flipping through Van Wick Brooks' book called Flowering of New England, which is sort of a literary history of New England. And I went through a page and Brooks starts talking about, well, there's this group in the 1890s in Boston, who were a bunch of monarchists and you know, were raising seditious toast, and it was called the Order of the White Rose, and it just moves on. And I thought, I'm pretty good with New England history. I've never heard of this in my life. Who are these people? And it was to satisfy my curiosity. And it ended up being a book because I kept finding more information right. and thinking, yeah. these are the most interesting people in the world. I've never <laughs> heard of these people in my life. And the more I thought about it, I said, you can fit these people into the uh, into an understanding of the 1890s as an American, into an understanding of the reform movements of the progressive era, essentially enter a wedge in for these people so that they become, they become part of the story. Mm -hmm. The other thing I think is really interesting is the end of the life of Robert Thomas Nichol, with sort of a poignancy to it. Because he was really tough to track down. Yeah, can you describe that? Because you say you say in the uh, acknowledgments or at some, someplace, this is the yeah. most satisfying piece of historical detective work you've ever done. And yeah, you've, it done, was, you've done some good detective work, so that's that, yeah. that's saying something. This was much more satisfying because nobody knows who he is. I mean, this is a sort of <laughs> invisible guy, and so I kept searching for information. Searching, I contacted. Trinity School in Ontario, they sent me a couple of things, some useful stuff. He graduated from Trinity College in Toronto. They sent me a couple of things. I reached out. When I found out he worked at the Metropolitan Museum, they reached. Uh, they had a, uh, an actual big personnel file on him. And because of COVID, I wasn't able to actually go there and read the whole file. But they very kindly copied some stuff for me, which filled in some blanks about the end of his life. And... I, as I came to the end of his life, I was trying to find out where he is. You know, where is this man buried? And I, it was very difficult to track down because we have some last letters from his friends talking about what happened. And they, one of them said, well, we had the funeral in Manhattan and we put the casket on the train and we brought him up to Portsmouth where we buried him. And I'm thinking, what Portsmouth are we talking about here? Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Portsmouth, Rhode Island, Portsmouth, Virginia. I mean, I don't know what Portsmouth we're speaking of. One of his friends actually had a design studio. He was a sculptor, I believe, in Portsmouth, Rhode Island. I'm thinking, what are the odds? You're, this His friend has to be from Portsmouth. His other friend, who was also at the funeral, was from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. So I'm thinking... What Portsmouth are we going to have to find here? So I wrote the Portsmouth Athenaeum in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and saying, look, I have a description of this guy's death. He was buried 
uh, roughly around here, and can you tell me if his grave is actually there? And they wrote me back and said, you know, I don't know. The director of the Athenaeum wrote me back and said, I don't know. But I have a friend who lives next door to the creek farm where he supposedly was buried. I'll call her up. She's going to walk over with her phone and see if there's a graveyard there and take a picture of the gravestones. I thought, this is the best thing that's ever happened. <laughs> a day later, he writes me back and says, his grave's there. And here's the picture of it. Unbelievable. The, the whole <laughs> tombstone was there, slate tombstone. And it was great because the letter describing his burial said, you know, we dug a hole and we lined it with pine needles because it was in a pine grove. And then we lowered the simple casket in and we buried it over in the chapel. Or the uh, chaplain gave a little service and what have you. And you're in, you look at the picture and it's covered with pine needles. And it's the slate cross there, which he designed himself. Of, the slate, the of course, stone. of course, he did. Uh, yeah, that, that Latin on there, here lies a sinner. It was really marvelous. So it was really satisfying to actually track that that type of thing down, where the director of the Athenaeum goes and says, "I'll talk to the neighbor, and she'll come over and take a picture of it, see if it's there." It's great. I don't know if you remember. Was uh, it was Leo Rabufo? Was he George Washington or an American when we were we were children at, uh, uh, in grad I think you're right. And I think you're right. he um, he had a habit. He was addicted to investigating weird right wing movements, which, as he pointed out, eventually would become important. And I've thought that you've become sort of his successor in your addiction for like lost causes and little weird out of the way places, which turn out and you've proven to me turn out to be like really important um, that in the, because of what they indicate, maybe they're not, not important because they had thousands and tens of thousands of followers, let alone that they succeeded, but they certainly indicate um, a direction, which we continue to see. That's the really curious part in, yeah. in what people are calling now post-liberalism, but let's go, I mean, there's a continuing thread here in anti-liberalism and, um, and, and that's why I tried in the book to make a big deal of Louis Hartz's book, The Liberal Tradition in America, which still holds on. I think I saw an article in the New York Times several years back saying, this is true. Hartz wrote it in the 1950s. It still holds true. United States is a liberal nation. It has left varieties of liberalism and has right varieties of liberalism. But it is a liberal nation, has always been a liberal nation. And one of the things that I've tried to do with not only this book, but other things I've done, is to show, well, it's a bit more complex than yeah. that. You can find plenty of anti-liberal pre uh, precedents in the United States, um, and the Jacobites are a perfect example of that. Mm -hmm. And it, this kind of fits into your, hopefully, your next book. You'll finally finish, talk about lost causes, talk about oddballs, finally finish your book on James Buchanan, the man best prepared to be president of the United States. Greatest president in the history of the – no, I'm just kidding. Great, greatest uh, prepared presidential candidate in American yeah. history. Let's say that. Let's, people always say George H.W. Bush, but I know from you, James Buchanan by a, a mile. I mean – Not even close. Not even close. Succeeded by the worst prepared man to ever be president, possibly, yes. other than Donald Trump. Yes. <laughs> I've been working on Buchanan for better than a decade. Yeah. And uh, right now I do it every single day. I'm working on – putting it together. It's uh, it's going to be, I hope it's going to be something. <laughs> well, my guest today has been Michael Connolly. He's the author of Jacobitism in Britain and the United States, 1880-1910. It's slim. It's elegant. It's a quick read. Stunning and horrifying might also be, <laughs> might be other things to call it. But Michael, thanks as always. Good seeing you again. To the queen over the water, Al. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend, or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 